When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm your host, Mike Osborne. Today's episode, Invertebrates. Gutless, spineless, but perhaps underappreciated invertebrates. We're going to start off by talking about maybe the most overlooked group of eukaryotes, fungi. We'll then travel to southeastern Alaska to learn about the changing forest community. And finally, at the end of today's show, we're going to leave the invertebrates and debut a new segment that we're calling Convos with Cal. More on that when we get there. But first, we bring you five mind-blowing facts about fungi. Hannah Black has the story. Hyphae, Basidiospore, Mycelium, Prototaxides, Oomycota, Heterocarion. Chances are you've never heard these words before. They probably weren't taught in your high school biology class. No one ever bothers to tell us how amazing fungi are. Yep, that's right, fungi. Now, you're probably imagining mushrooms in a forest or in a little cardboard box at the grocery store, but fungi are so much more than that. Today, we have five mind-blowing facts about fungi that no one knows, but everyone should. And here to help us is Professor Kabir Pei. Yeah, so my name is uh, Kabir Pei. I'm an assistant professor in the biology department here at Stanford. My research uh, has mostly been focused on ecology of microbial organisms, and in particular, uh, fungi. Pei is also a pretty fun guy. Get it? Fun guy? Okay, anyway, here's our first fact. Number one. 
fungi once dominated the earth and may still dominate it today. Hundreds of millions of years ago, early on in the history of complex life, the continents were barren. Almost all life was in the shallow ocean. Now, you might think that plants were the first to pioneer their way onto land, but you'd be wrong. Fungi probably beat them to it. And specifically, a category of fungi called prototaxides. Prototaxides. People for a long time thought were, um, you know, fossilized, early fossilized plants. These were likely um, actually gigantic fungi that were sort of meters tall and these giant sort of fungal masses. If you visited Earth 500 million years ago, you would find nothing on land except these gigantic fungal masses. Imagine basically a tall forest of fungi. Eventually, plants and vertebrates and whatnot also made their way onto land. But fungi were first. And in fact, fungi may still dominate the planet today. Just in terms of you know, numbers of uh, species and biodiversity, current estimates are that there's probably somewhere between maybe 1 and 10 million species of fungi on the planet. And just to put that in perspective, there are probably something like 300,000 described species of plants, uh, 50,000 species of vertebrate animals, and maybe you know, a million species of insects. Uh, and so you know, fungi are two to three times more diverse than any of these groups in most likelihood. Maybe it was the fact that fungi got a head start on land that leads us to the next point. Number two. Fungi have superhero qualities. Some of the biggest and longest living organisms on Earth are fungi. One of the largest uh, organisms on Earth is probably a fungus. So people have uh, genotyped this uh, fungus called uh, Armillaria ostoiae from the Blue Mountains of Oregon. And it's supposed to be uh, a thousand hectares in size and maybe a couple thousand of years old. So it's in the running for largest organisms on the planet. Of course, size isn't everything. Speed's pretty important, too. And it turns out, some fungi can generate crazy fast speeds. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Pylobolus. So uh, Pylobolus is a dung fungus. And uh, this means that it grows on the undigested plant material that's in you know, animal poop. Yeah, so it lives on poop. Not very glamorous. But it has a really elaborate way of dispersing its spores. People often call it the water cannon. And so uh, what Pylobolus does is it builds up in this sort of swollen water-filled area beneath the sporangial packet. It builds up a lot of pressure and this eventually explodes and it shoots this uh, spore packet very violently away from the poop. And uh, it turns out that the flight of this spore packet are some of the fastest uh, flights that people have observed in nature. So fungi can create speeds faster than a speeding bullet. And on top of that, other fungi are strong enough to blast through bulletproof vests. That's a, a fungus known as Magnaporthe grisia, and this is known as the rice blast fungus. Fungi have these hyphae that are really good at um, getting into solid substrates, and so it has to penetrate the plant cell, and it does this by creating this uh, thing called a hostorium and generating this huge amount of pressure, and people have shown that, that it can penetrate basically mylar or something similar to Kevlar. Now... It's one thing to be big, fast, and strong. But if you're not equipped for long, hard travel, what good are you? Well, it turns out that fungi are pretty happy to travel anywhere and everywhere people go. And beyond. Number three, they grow anywhere and everywhere. 
And so fungi have been found in some pretty crazy places. There were fungi that people recently described from uh, the reactor on Chernobyl. Okay, you're probably thinking to yourself, so fungi can grow at ground zero of the worst nuclear disaster in history. That's pretty special, I guess. But I'm still not impressed. Well, consider this. Fungi were found growing in, in the space station mirror. They were kind of growing in and all, all through it. Because you can put them out in space and leave them out there for a little while, and they come back and they're okay. That's right. Fungi are A-OK with space travel. In fact, their resiliency is kind of a problem for humans' space ambitions. There's fungi that can uh, grow on, uh, on jet fuel, and uh, they can sometimes cause problems in jets, so they can actually break down jet fuel. Now, with all this fungal weirdness, you may be thinking, sure, there are some pretty freaky fungi out there. But at the end of the day, why should I care? Why do fungi matter to people? Well, it just so happens that humans are totally and completely dependent on fungi for all sorts of survival and our modern way of life. Number four, most of us would be dead in a world without them. And so probably... You know, the most obvious examples of, uh, you know, fun fungi being uh, harnessed for uh, human civilization are a lot of the food products that we eat. And so uh, there's one fungus, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, that uh, if nobody knows that. They should. This is the one fungus that everybody should, should probably know about. And this is the fungus that's responsible for, you know, beer and bread. Some people mistakenly believe that yeast are bacteria or something. Wrong. Yeast are actually tiny fungi which means they're responsible for many of our all-time favorite foods and beverages. And of course, it's not just the fungal-based food that makes the world go round. Fungi are also there for us during our times of deepest need. Antibiotics are probably the most uh, important thing, you know, societally that have come from fungi, and really the kind of poster child for this is penicillin. And fungi are ready to sacrifice for democracy and freedom. The availability of penicillin uh, near was credited, actually, with, uh, in some ways, turning the tide in World War II um, because fewer and fewer of our soldiers were actually dying from uh, non-combat-related infections. However, before we get carried away, singing the sweet praises of all the blessings fungi have bestowed upon us, let us not forget they have a much darker side. In fact... Number five, they might be trying to kill us and put an end to the Anthropocene once and for all. Science Magazine, a couple years ago, had this uh, feature that was about 10 or 20 ways the world was going to come to an end. And most of the stuff is fairly apocalyptic. It was like volcanoes or asteroids or things like that. But one of the ones that they had was uh, death by fungus. Death by fungus. If that sounds preposterous, consider this little factoid. Although fungi are frequently feeding and fostering our ferocious food fancies, they also make it royally difficult for us to grow all of our food. And they're really critical pathogens of a lot of you know, human agricultural crops, so things like uh, soybean, coffee, and a lot of our grain crops. So if you've heard of the Irish potato famine, uh, this was caused by an, uh, an omicota organism. 
And if you think that modern technological farming practices have overcome all of the challenges that led us to famine in the past, think again. There are new, uh, more virulent strains of these pathogens that are constantly emerging. And so there's one in Africa right now called UG99 that came out of Uganda uh, that has been able to break a lot of the multi-gene resistance in a lot of the common uh, varietals of wheat that are being grown. And so there's great fear that this thing will get loose or you know, spread to America and could have really uh, devastating impacts um, on our uh, wheat production. And so, you know, we're in this constant battle or this arms race with these fungi. And we certainly haven't won it yet by any means. Also, and this is perhaps the scariest point, humans have already unwittingly and unknowingly moved around fungal colonies from ecosystem to ecosystem and continent to continent, which means that we have no idea how much fungi is out there, how it might be acting like an invasive organism, and what the future may hold. So if you were to look at sort of a, a baseball-sized, um, you know, area of soil, that uh, area of soil would probably have a couple hundred species of fungi in them. So there's a huge amount of diversity just beneath, uh, you know, your feet every day as you walk around and cross a lawn or, you know, walk on, across some forest soil. The, the, the most important thing to recognize is that these are incredibly diverse, unique organisms, and they form a really important component of the biodiversity of life on our planet. So next time you decide to trip out on all the wonderful ways in which human societies have progressed and evolved, remember that almost none of it would be possible without our ancient, superhuman, extremophilic fungal friends. But some of them may also be our foes. That was Hannah Black. Special thanks also to KZSU's Bird for lending an assist with that piece. We now journey to southeastern coastal Alaska, where a wave of ecological change is sweeping across the region. Caitlin Woolsey brings us this story that features field ecologist Lauren Oakes. Our story begins with Lauren describing her study site. Scattered islands, ragged coastline, uh, real foggy, inclement weather. The area and the forest that I work in are um, some of the oldest growth temperate rainforests on Earth. So some of the trees are 400 years old and um, you'll get big spruce trees that fall down in wind throw and have, you know, I, there's some pictures of me climbing up on the spruce roots that are twice my height, you know, and I'm, and I'm six feet tall, so, so we're talking a pretty big tree. That's Lauren Oakes. She's a field ecologist and interdisciplinary environmental scientist who has spent many months in the Tongass National Forest, the temperate rainforest of southeast Alaska. Lauren's remote study area stretches along the outer coast of the Alexander Archipelago, just to the west of British Columbia. So, why would anyone put themselves through endless days of wet boots, wrinkly fingers, and leaky rain gear? In some ways, Alaska is the front lines of climate change. Regional annual temperature approximately doubles that of the global mean annual temperature increase in the 20th century. So it's getting warmer twice as fast. Alaska is already being hit hard by climate change. Lauren's research focuses on one effect in particular, the die-off of yellow cedar. It's one of the five primary tree species in the region, and it has been slowly dying off for decades because of climate change. Starting in the 1970s and 80s, the yellow cedar decline began to intensify. 
and uh, what we see in the Pacific Northwest in terms of climate change is increasing warming and increasing precipitation as rain and a reduced snowfall. So there's less snow covering the tree's roots, but there are still sudden cold snaps. And it's that combination of reduced snowpack and sudden cold events that harms the yellow cedars. And without snow on the tree's roots, which is basically acting as a blanket, they're vulnerable to those sudden cold events. Lauren and her team wanted to map the pattern of yellow cedar die-off and to discover how the forest develops after these trees die. At the southern end of Lauren's study site, the dieback has been occurring for about 100 years. And at the northern end, the trees are still healthy, for now. Over the course of seven months, Lauren and her crew sampled 50 plots of land across a range of latitudes. The temperate rainforest is thick with vegetation and often impenetrable. Lauren and her team had to use float planes and kayaks to access these remote forests. Yeah, we called it jumping in. We would stand on the, on the shore and kind of all take a deep breath. And it's like, all right, we're going to jump in now. And then you're literally kind of jumping through a wall all the while following this transect line, you know, occasionally cursing and saying, who thought up this project? <laughs> Who's, whose brilliant idea was this? <laughs> when yellow cedars die, they don't just disappear. Their wood is highly resistant to decay. So imagine a forest of barren tree trunks with no branches, standing like white skeletons. This opens up the canopy and more light reaches the forest floor. Different types of plants are then able to move in, taking advantage of the newfound light. Like mosses and things that you tend to associate with those dreamy, you know, old growth forests tend to tend to decrease in abundance early on. And grasses, you know, that respond to light increase in abundance. As more yellow cedars die throughout the Tongass, it's not just impacting forest structure. Residents of southeast Alaska are also a part of the forest community and the decline is changing the way that they relate to their local ecosystem. I really wanted to go a step further and understand, well, what does this mean for the people who derive, you know, different uses and values from these forests, largely to think about how we're adapting to these changes. Lauren interviewed a cross-section of Southeast Alaskans, including loggers, subsistence hunters, forest managers, commercial fishers, and tour operators. She found that many people feel a strong sense of attachment to yellow cedar. That was the amazing part to me. I guess what was unexpected is I learned a lot more about the intangible values. I kind of went in thinking, okay, how do people use it when they're bark? Or how do people use the bark? Or how do people use the logs? And what are they doing in their homes? Um, but people really opened up and shared, you know, deep connection to these trees. Um, spiritually, through the aesthetic, through their recreational experience, um, just really recognizing them as a unique species that some people felt attached to. Lauren's interviews revealed that across the area, people are already confronting the reality of the Anthropocene. Social scientists have known for a long time that knowledge of climate change is rarely enough to inspire shifts in behavior. But what Lauren is seeing in Southeast Alaska is that knowledge combined with experience changes the equation. She found that when people feel a strong sense of attachment to a changing landscape, they're more likely to alter their behavior. Lauren met people who are reducing their energy use, educating others about climate, and planting yellow cedar in habitats where it has a greater chance of survival. 
people are adapting along with their ecosystem. As climate change progresses in the coming decades, it's an experience that many of us are likely to share. Thanks to Caitlin Woolsey for bringing us that story. Finally, on today's episode, we are debuting a new segment called Convos with Cow. This segment features our friend Cowstub Thermali, who's studying ancient climates, or paleoclimate, at UT Austin. Cow is always thinking, writing, blogging, and talking about a wide range of climate science topics. We started this conversation by talking about climate change over the past 2,000 years. One thing that I'm a part of is, is Pages 2K Group. So this is, uh, uh, Pages is an organization which is past global changes, and uh, they basically have funds for, you know, large paleoclimate synthesis studies and things like that. And so there was this group called Pages 2K that was formed about four years ago, I want to say, and I'm part of this group called Oceans 2K, where all we do is, you know what, there's so many records out there, what do they all mean together? Let's, so many paleoclimate records, you mean? Yeah, so many paleoceanographic and paleoclimate records of the last 2,000 years. What can we understand from them? How can we best listen to what they're telling us? And each one tells its own story, right? So the whole process was to, A, collate all this information, which is a huge problem. You know how that is, going into NCDC, picking out all these records, yeah, and then trying to make sense of them. One is a forearm record, one's a coral record, one's a... Alkanone record, all different types of cave records. I mean, you know, and and, and yeah. if it is coral, somebody measured strontium, calcium. Somebody else measured O eighteen. Absolutely. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. And at the same time, all not all of them go back all the two thousand years. Some of them are fifty year uh, resolutions. Some of them are annual resolutions. Some are subannual. Right. All different types of stuff. So there's actually going to be a. There was just a recent paper published actually by Jess Tierney. She was first author from the Pages 2K high-resolution ocean group. And they collected all the coral records out there, and they just wanted to see what do all these coral records collectively tell us. And there's been some significant advances. So one thing that I can talk about is her paper, and uh, what they've been noticing, and we've been noticing it too, is that the warming out of the Little Ice Age, so-called Little Ice Age, or the modern warming period, actually started somewhere around 1830. The Little Ice Age, as defined by the IPCC, is 1450 to 1850 AD. They just put some number on it. They said that's the median, which everyone calls. But of course, the globe doesn't care about when you call it Little Ice Age or so on. So different records tell you different stuff. And that in itself indicates that you you had cooling in different parts to different degrees. But this new collation uh, of coral records actually says that the warming associated with global warming, modern global warming, with all its bumps and its hiatuses and its cooling, but the overall significant warming trend started somewhere around 1830 or so, which is much earlier than a lot of people place the warming period uh, timescale. You know, with instrumental observations, you say something around you know 1920, 1930 or so. But most of these records actually show that they started warming a lot earlier. I mean, so what? But CO2 begin, you know, begins to rise with the Industrial Revolution in what 1750? I mean. That's the important thing. Yes, exactly. So now, all of a sudden, we actually have comprehensive quantitative proxy records that tell you that warming began in concert with CO2 much earlier than we originally thought. Interesting. Okay, so there's less of a CO2 than warming lag than we thought? Yeah. 
That's yes. the, that's the message. Okay. Yes. But if it's coral records, then it's got to be a little bit of a tropical story, I would assume. I mean, do we do we see that 1830 signal popping up in you know in the extra tropics, in the mid latitudes, and in the poles? This is what I can't really talk about, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. So this is, is what you're working the, on right now. Yeah, yeah. So okay, we're so working on other records all over, like uh, tree ring records, and this paper is actually published, so I can tell you a little bit about it. Where they have, they've done every continent by itself. So there's an Australia 2K, there's an America 2K, so on, where different groups of people actually analyze terrestrial proxy records from a particular continent. And so now what I am working on, or I'm a part of at least, is uh, this group that reconciles the oceanic records and the terrestrial records. And you can actually very clearly see a propagation of this warming. Which continents start to warm first, and which parts start to warm first? Wow. How does that propagate? Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, what's really cool about it, at least I, I think what's really cool about it, is it might really tell us something about where signals originate and, 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 and where the important beats are in the Earth climate system for, like, sort of being transmitted around the globe. We're uh, quite far from that, but this is the initial steps towards that. A spatial signal, like what is the spatial history of warming? Nobody knows that. So, in, in other words, we have the Earth climate system going along with its internal noise, and then humans come along, start spewing a bunch of CO2. Where does that show up first? Uh, yes. Geographically and like ocean, land, whatever. And then how does it move around the system? Exactly. I'm quite excited about it. How close uh, are you to publication with this stuff? Oh, it's, I mean, uh, I believe we have a draft that's going to be sent to a journal soon, within within weeks. A, a high-impact journal, I hope? Yes. Like yep. a, an extremely high-impact journal? Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully it goes through, yep. <laughs> that's that's actually seriously cool, man. That's, that's exciting. I mean, it sounds like you guys are making some real progress and some serious insight on it. Absolutely, and that to me is actually very exciting. So it's not just where the drumbeat originates, but also where that drumbeat is echoed, and then by virtue of that echo, it starts a new drumbeat somewhere else. So, so it's like you can actually pinpoint where and when you actually started this warming and how that propagates throughout the globe. Wow, that's cool. All right, great to talk to you. Thank you for making time for this on a Saturday. We'll touch base again no soon. No worries. Later, dude. Later. Bye. You can learn more about CalStub by following him on Twitter at HolyCal. That's holy underscore K-A-U. We also have a link to his blog up on our website. Check it out. Okay, that's it for this week's show. Next week on the podcast, how nature has shaped human history. We are not free from nature. We tend not to think that we affect the environment and the environment then affects us and that we have a relationship and an interaction with it. We tend to think we have harnessed it and therefore we now control it and therefore we can do what we like with it. But in fact, we are still changing it and it is then affecting us in turn. Geography keeps changing what it means. So, you know, a country like England, where I grew up, through most of history, just a terrible, wretched place to live. Then well, it rains all the time. It's like a big lump of coal with a little bit of soil scattered on the top and a lot of rain. Um, that is terrible until you suddenly discover how to use coal to power machinery, which can make things move and unleash these unbelievable amounts of energy. Then abruptly, England is catapulted into dominating a global system. That's next week, right here on Generation Anthropocene. 
Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Miles Traer, and me, Mike Osborne. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Madsen, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is www.genanthro.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. We are also now on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Um, Here we go. Take two. Number three. They grow anywhere and everywhere. They grow anywhere and everywhere. They grow anywhere and everywhere. Got it. Perfect. That's awesome.